Welcome to Station to Station. My name is Simon Astaire. The rules are simple. The choice is of a train journey. It can be as long or short as you like. On the journey, our guest is asked 12 questions before they reach their destination. 12 questions that define a life. Our passenger today is Fatima Bhutto, a writer of five books, an activist, and a campaigner. She is the daughter of the assassinated politician Gulam Mutasa Bhutto, who was murdered outside the family home. She is the granddaughter of the former president and prime minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto and the niece of the assassinated prime minister Benazir Bhutto. In her book, Songs of Blood and Sword, she gives a rare discernment into the violent world of Pakistan politics and writes about the search for the truth behind her father's life and murder. In the introduction to her Twitter feed, she quotes Nabokov. My loathings are simple. Stupidity, oppression, crime, cruelty, soft music. Fatima, welcome to Station to Station. Thank you for having me, Simon. It's such a pleasure. Let's start by asking what train you are taking and why have you chosen it? If I were to make my last journey, I would go from Karachi, Pakistan, to Larkana, also in Pakistan. Um, they're both in Sindh and they're both special to me. Larkana is where my family is from and Karachi is, is also where we live but not where we're from. And out of all the travels I've ever made anywhere in the world, that is the most special one to me. And sorry to be a little ignorant, but are taking trains a common occurrence in Pakistan? Is it a big form of uh, transport? Yes, they're not necessarily the best way <laughs> to go. Um, I'm slightly imagining that I would take the train from Karachi to Larkana because normally I would drive or I would fly. It takes much, much longer to go by train. The trains are kind of well, they're sort of relics, aren't they? Because they were built by the British and they remind you, even the, down to the train stations, they, they come from a forgotten time, really, train stations, in, in Pakistan at least, if not in South Asia. That's wonderful though, isn't it? To sort of go back in time. Or, I mean, it seems very romantic to me. It is quite. I mean, I've, I've spent time just sitting in train stations in Pakistan, not actually going anywhere, but just sitting there to look at people and listen to things. And it, it is an extraordinary place. It has its own little mini culture from how the luggage is carried, the porters, the tea that you can drink there, the shouting, all of that. It is quite romantic, but it is also kind of frozen in time as well. And that can be slightly less romantic. So the second question is, are you going to something or away from something? I'm going to something. Larkana is always a homecoming for me, not just a physical one because it's where my family is from, it's where we all come from, but it's an emotional homecoming for me. It's so tied to my childhood and the memories and sounds and smells. I mean, the air smells different there. It feels different. I suppose we always have that. What does it smell like? You say it smells different. What does it smell like? 
it's totally unique. So when you land in Larkana, actually you would probably, there's any points at which you could land, but the air smells like honey, like it's a honeyed smell, but it's also like a mesquite smell, you know, it smells sweet, like a kind of honeyed barbecue smell. And it's the only place on earth I've ever smelled that. You know, you, you go another town away, an hour up or down, it, the air smells different there. And it feels, I don't know, the air feels textured. It feels like, I don't want to say grainy because that makes it sound bad or polluted. It's not because you've got farmland, you've got orchards all around you. But it, I don't know, you can, you can kind of taste the earth, if that makes sense. You can kind of feel the earth as well. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I smell something and it's like it's tangible. And that's how it seems as if you're describing it. There's a sense of it not just being a smell, but you can sort of swallow it in a way. Exactly. It's so distinct to me and it's consistent. It never changes. It's always there. It's incredibly reliable as a memory. And, and I also find that unique because no place is ever quite the same. Maybe you should bottle it and make it into a candle. <laughs> if only, I would love that. <laughs> but it's true. It, it, when you reach a destination, if you recognize the smell of the destination that you, even if it's a slightly off smell, I find, it has an incredibly welcoming feeling. Yeah. Now that you say it, it's the first time I've really thought about it. All the places that I consider home, to me, have very unique smells upon arrival. <laughs> And they're all kind of, like you said, they might be slightly off, but because it's home, it has this resonance, which, which makes it good. And I mean, I can think of three places, Karachi, Larkana and, and Damascus, where I grew up, all have totally unique smells and textures to me. And the question was, are you going to something or away from something? And your answer was, I'm going to something. Is that part of who you are, do you think? Do you think that's part of your personality, that you head for something rather than escape from something? No, not necessarily so. I think it depends on the, the time in life or the journey. I've done plenty of journeys trying to get away from something or trying to flee or to escape something. But this one, to me, is, is a coming home. This one has consistent in that way. It's always a return. What do you hope to see when you look out of the window? What do you imagine seeing on this journey outside the window from where you're sitting? Well, the sky is incredibly blue. It's untouched by light pollution, by smog. It's bright, bright blue. And I always think of palm trees. There are plenty of trees. Obviously, there are orchards and all kinds of things. And there's wheat and there's rice and there's sugarcane. But I always think of palm trees. And they're different in my eyes than palm trees in another city. They're very, I don't know, they're not squat. You know, sometimes palm trees can be a little squat and a little crowded. These aren't crowded. They're tall and they're grand. And that's what I would hope to see. So they're like in California, like when I think of California and those palm trees, they're always tall and uh, oversized in a way. Are they a bit like that or no? Maybe not so tall, no, maybe not so tall. What makes them look tall, taller than they are maybe, is the land around them. But now that you've asked me that question, I'm seeing so many things if I look out the window. Hey, let me hear about a couple more. There's a part of the road, 
it's changed since I was a child as people cut down trees and basically destroy the earth. But there were plenty of stretches of road where the road would be shaded by canopies of eucalyptus trees. And you would go from this bright blue sky to this sort of shadow of greenery. I would see that next. And I would also see water buffalo. That's another sight from childhood. They're very slow and they're very regal in a sense. They don't plod along, you know, like other cattle. They're very regal. And in Sindh, they're always wearing collars, I guess. Right. That's what I don't know. Collars are what you put on dogs. I don't know what you put on cattle, but they're beaded and they're beaded with very bright colors. And that's the third thing I would say. What do water buffalo represent in your eyes or generally? What do they represent in the land? Does it have a sign of wealth? In a way, yes, certainly, because people save up and it costs quite a lot to own your own livestock. And they're sort of beasts of burden, I suppose. And they work. They're working animals. And... To me, it's just um, it's like um, a snapshot of a place, of seeing them share the road with you and knowing that they belong there just as much as you. You know, you can't sort of hurry them up while you're trying to get from A to Z. There are processions of them and you have to be patient and respectful when you come across one because they, they will take their sweet time to pass. So who will you be traveling with? I would be traveling with my younger brother, Zulfikar, because we've made that journey so many times together as children and as young adults, certainly, but we made it together recently again. And I think it's very emotional for both of us, that particular journey. And I suppose a wonderful thing about a sibling is that it's like having a second set of eyes and thoughts completely distinct to the one you carry around every day. And so there are things we pick up together, like the water buffalo, and we have all these sort of childhood jokes and references. And you know. And then there are other things that he picks up that I would never see. And I always value his eye on that journey. It always shows me something I hadn't thought of before. Uh, so he's younger than you. When you look at things, like looking out of the window or even in conversation, do you have the same emotional connection? Do you react in the same way or is he very different? He's eight years younger than me. And I think we have very similar reactions at core. But once the core is there, we, we, di- we diverge maybe. I mean, I don't mean diverge in a negative way or in a combative way. But he has, he's an artist and an environmentalist. So he will see things that just I wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to me to see. I wouldn't even understand where to look for those things. So they're very distinct as thoughts go from mine. But I suppose we share a certain foundation. So for example, on any journey together, he'll always point out rivers. You know, he's a sort of student and devotee of the rivers. So even if we're sitting on a plane together, I look down and see sprawl or see urban congestion, and he'll always find the river, even when it's overcast. He, he always sees it. I, I, I just can't. You know, I, I look down and I see roads, not, not rivers. That's really interesting that when you look at something, 
how we all look at it in a different way. I know that's an obvious thing to say, but in a way it's true that we can actually look out on a, a stretch of land and we're all looking at different things really, even though there might be just a couple of things on the land, you know. Absolutely. So what keepsake would you take with you from your life? Well, I don't want to be boring and say, you know, my, my camera phone so I can take pictures of the landscape. That seems kind of obvious and not very interesting. But would a pet count? Could I bring a dog? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Which dog? Well, I've got three. I'd ha- I have to pick one or can I bring all three? You know, you can bring all three. So you would bring all three. Will you be able to cope with all three on the train? I mean, I can barely cope with them, you know, on, on dry land. So how much harder could the train be? I don't think they've been to Larakana, mainly for that reason that it would be <laughs> difficult to cope with them. But I, I think they would love it. I think they would be super excited to arrive in Larkana, I think they would be thrilled to see the water buffalo, the peacocks, the wild dogs, the stray cats. I think they would be really excited and I would love them to come along, especially if it was the last time I was going to make that trip. You're touching on something that I know is very important to you, meaning that you've started to campaign, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for animals that have been treated badly and for, is that right? Am I right in Uh, saying that and pointing that out? Yes, I I sort of came to it late in life because Pakistan being what it is, there's always something really urgent and existential that requires our attention. And it's really only about five years ago that I started to see a kind of dark rage in society that had changed, that had become darker and more angry. And the way it showed itself was in people's cruelty towards animals. And I hadn't expected to see that, but it was the way it was most clear to me. And I felt completely disturbed by it. And when you start to look for something, you start to see it everywhere. So once I started looking, then I couldn't really look away. And I do try and talk about it. I don't think it's a simple question of just animals' rights. But I think as we head into this terrifying future where humans are setting fire to the planet, where our excess and our rage and our greed is essentially swallowing up the earth, you know, it's all happening at the expense of what's wild and natural and free, whether that's land um, or forests or rainforests or animals, you know, destroying wild habitats which, you know, bring animals closer to us and increase chances of disease and pandemics. I mean, I, I do think it is an existential issue now. So, yeah, I do, I do talk about that quite a bit. And it's a sad topic. There's no easy way to talk about it. But I think it speaks to our present predicament as a kind of society wherever we are in the world, whether Pakistan or somewhere else. You know, I mean, even in the UK since the pandemic, I mean, millions and millions of people have abandoned their pet dogs. They've abandoned them because of the crisis of living, um, because it's too expensive to feed another belly. They abandoned them because they adopted them on a crazy whim during lockdowns. You know, and I think that speaks to how how dispensably we see the wild and, and free world. So I think it says a lot about a society how they're dealing with nature and with animals today. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I became, I, I fell in love with 
my wife's dog, sort of late. I wasn't really connected to dogs. And all of a sudden, this dog has entered my life. And she fills up this, you know, where I live. I mean, her presence, which is not that big, is extraordinary. And because I've got this love for this dog, I've noticed other people, the way they treat their animals or the ones that don't like animals. It's like they're from a different world. And I, maybe I was, I was never, you know, I was never against it, but maybe I was a little bit unaware of how beautiful these creatures are. I'm not just talking about dogs. I'm just saying creatures in general. And you're right. I think it reflects yeah. society, the way that we treat our, the animals as much as anyone else. I agree. So you're taking the dogs. When your train goes into a tunnel, what's your first thought? Impatience. Impatience because I want to be out of the tunnel and see light and see things moving past me. I don't like to be suspended in not knowing. Do you feel comfortable in it, though? I mean, do you have any fear when you're in it or uh, it's just the impatience aspect? I don't, I don't feel afraid in it and I'm not worried. It doesn't make me anxious, but it does make me feel impatient. I want to have a sense of how time is moving, even if it's a total a fantasy that I could track time. And the tunnel, the tunnel makes me realize I, I can't actually track time. And that makes me feel a little impatient, a little antsy, let's say, maybe. What do you see in the passing carriages when a train travels in the opposite direction? I try not to overthink this. I mean, when you asked the question, I just saw a woman. I thought I would see a family or, you know, a scene of a family, but I just saw a woman. I think when you, when you, when you have those moments with everything moving incredibly quickly around you, you usually just sort of flash on, on a face, don't you, if you're lucky? You flash on an expression. And I guess that's what I saw when you asked the question. And what was the expression you saw? Waiting. Somebody waiting to reach the end of their journey. Yeah. Wasn't happy or sad or lonely or busy. It was just, I guess, the process, the process of taking a trip. Yeah. The train stops at a station, probably because there's some water buffalo walking by, <laughs> and you have 10 minutes before it leaves. What do you do? There are some people who are incredibly relaxed while traveling. And if they had 10 minutes, they'd get off the train, wander around, you know, make a phone call, sort of. I'm not one of those because I always think 10 minutes, that's nothing. Let's just sit here and wait for it to go again. You don't want to be drifting off while your train leaves. But as this is my last journey, I will take advantage of the 10 minutes. And I would get down and get something to drink. And what I would want, as it's my last journey... You know, tea in South Asia is incredibly sweet and heavy and milky. I wouldn't want that, but I would want a coconut water, which you get fresh in Sindh, you know, because they, they take it down from the trees and they, they sell it on the road right there. And it's not the sweetest coconut water. In fact, it's kind of bitter in a way. It's kind of flavorless or bitter. But I still like it, and I would quickly go and get one of those before getting back on the train. Okay, so you've got the dogs on the train, you've now got your coconut water, you're ready to take the next <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't take the dogs down on the 10-minute break. I mean, I'd take <laughs> them with my brother on the train. Yeah. Go, go get us coconut water and come back. Yeah, then you might miss the train. If you take the three dogs as well. You... 100% we'd miss it. We're reaching the sort of, you know, the last bit of the journey now. 
who would you like to say sorry to or thank you to? I wouldn't say sorry. I would say thank you. I would say thank you to my father because when my when I was young, my father would take me on this journey um, as often as he could. And when I was a sort of early teenager, I resisted it a lot. And he kept, so maybe there is a little sorry there, I guess. He would say, this is a wonderful journey. This is where you're from. This is where your roots are from. You must come and spend time here. And I was, you know, a teenager. So I wanted to be somewhere where the phone lines worked and where my friends were. And I didn't want to be hanging around somewhere far away. And he didn't get to see me fall in love with the place. So I would say thank you to him for taking me on that journey. Maybe a little sorry for not appreciating it at the time that he was there. But it's, um, it's my favorite place in Pakistan, Larkana, actually. And so I would thank him for, for giving me that. You've written about your father, and he clearly is part of your life, and I should presume everyone who talks to you one way or another brings him up. For people who grieve or who've lost someone early, what sort of advice can you give them for someone who lost their father and you know, murdered outside your house when you were 14 years old? What sort of advice can you give from your experience about grief and, and dealing with it and walking with it beside you? I think grief is a, is a strange experience because as you grow, you, you never lose grief, but it transforms as you transform and it adapts itself to you. You can't really adapt yourself to grief. You know, grief bends to your shape, not the other way around. And you learn to carry it in different ways. Sometimes it's incredibly heavy and burdensome sometimes it's overwhelming sometimes it's almost um, affectionate but the thing I suppose I've learned and it changes all the time but the thing I think of now at this point in my life is what tragedy has taught me and what trauma has taught me is that Human be not just human beings, I mean, living creatures, whether humans or dogs or horses or whatever, can survive anything. Actually, we're built to survive any and everything. And when you are in grief, you have the feeling that you can't. Uh, you have the feeling that it's too overwhelming and it's too large to survive. But actually, we can survive anything. It asks a question of you, grief, I think. And how you answer it depends on how well you survive. I think grief asks you if you can absorb it and still have a faith in the world around you, if you can still believe in joy and love and beauty and, and goodness. And actually, not everyone can. I think some people are, are so damaged by grief that it can corrode them, it, it can embitter them and isolate them from the world that they live in. But if you are able to keep yourself open to those wonderful things that existed before you were struck by grief, then in this magical kind of way, 
you can survive not only that grief, but any other grief that comes for you in life. Yeah. Next question. If you fall asleep, who do you trust to wake you before you reach your destination? Someone in your life that you comes to mind, you go, that person can wake me. I know that person will wake me up. I mean, on this journey, I would have said the dogs because they'll never let me sleep more than five minutes anywhere without barking or moving or nibbling. I, you know, weirdly, Simon, I, I am that person in my life. I am the like ultra, or at least I've, I have been. Maybe I haven't allowed other people to do that for me. But I'm usually the one that sets an alarm on the phone when you're on a train. So in case you fall asleep, you'll wake up well before you're your destination. And I feel like I, I sort of took on that role for the people I love in my life. So perhaps this train journey is a reminder that I should let go every once in a while and let someone else do it. So are you admitting in this interview that you're a bit of a control freak? I, I am, yes. My name is Fatima and I'm a control freak. Um, <laughs> I don't really want to be a control freak. I'd love not to be. I'd love to just, you know float through things and just trust but i i am unfortunately a bit of a control freak and now that you ask the question it behooves me to let go a bit well you you can continue to be a control freak until the next time we meet what would you <laughs> what would you leave on your train before you get off you're leaving your seat someone's going to take it what are you going to leave them in your life this i actually do because as a writer, I'm sure this happens to you too, but you get sent loads of books, right? And you get sent books to blurb or books that your publisher, you know, has published or friends of yours or writers and you get books. And a couple of years ago, I tried to start simplifying and really only keep the books that I truly loved or, you know, didn't understand and needed time with and books that I liked or, you know, that were fine, but, you know, were not essential to me, I would leave places. I would leave them in planes. I would leave them on buses just to pass them on because they didn't move me in the way I wanted to be moved. But maybe they might do that for someone else. That was my reasoning. So I would kind of pass them along. So I would, I would probably do the same on this journey as well. There's a bookshop I know in Ojai in California. And outside, I might be getting this wrong, but outside every night, they leave books out on shelves outside. So anyone who's passing can pick up their, a book to read or whatever and take away. And I just think, as you say, like a sort of baton, passing it on to the next person is a, is a gift, really. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of free libraries, right, where someone just puts a box. Right. And the idea is you leave one, you take one. I think that's great. I'm always happy when I see one of those. Yes, I agree. And the final question is, who is meeting you at this destination? I mean, are we allowed to, to play with, with a magical hero? It has to be someone, really, who can meet me. No, 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 no. The magic and whatever comes oh, great. to you. I would love it if my, my grandmother, Nusrat, was meeting me because she was monumental in my life and she's one of the people I associate not just with Pakistan or Karachi, or, but very much so with Larkana. She was an extraordinary woman, incredibly brave, 
she was beautiful and and very elegant and and filled with grace. But what really made her stand out to me as a child um, is that she was also fearless. She was just unafraid. Nothing frightened her. And I saw her. I saw her as a child as this sort of lioness, and and couldn't imagine that she was somehow tough, but incredibly kind and and warm and sensitive, all at the same time. So I would like her very much to meet me at the end of this journey. What is your memory of her being? Fearless in a way. You say that, so you must have been a child watching this this fantastic woman, this great woman. Do you have a memory of her being fearless? Is this something that comes to mind? Before I was born, when Pakistan was under a very dark dictatorship, a CIA-backed martial law run by General Ziaul Haq, my grandmother was was beaten at a at a cricket stadium because she was seen as a as a not just an active resistor of the dictatorship, but but as a symbol of resistance. And she was clubbed in the head by the police. And there's there's a quite famous picture of her in Pakistan, bleeding in this in this stadium in, in Lahore. And so as a child I had seen this picture, but by that point, you know, the dictatorship was over and, and life was kind of new and hopeful again for a period. But I do have one memory of being in Pakistan with her, not in Larkana, although I have many memories of her there too, and seeing her in a a crowd, in a sea of people. And I remember at one point we were in Lahore and there were so many people on the roads and they had stopped our car. They were sort of climbing on the car and the driver had gotten out of the car to kind of try and move them because, you know, you had to keep moving. You couldn't just be stuck. And he was doing a really sad job of it. I mean, he couldn't get anyone away from the car. And my grandmother, in the middle of all this chaos, I said to her, God, this is so frightening. Aren't we? Shouldn't we be moving? And she said, yes, you're absolutely right. We should be moving. And she just opened the car door and got out and spoke to people and said, listen, we have to keep this car moving. Can you move? Can you move? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well done. Goodbye. And I just remember thinking she was going to get swallowed up by this sea of people. And she was very matter of fact, um, also very, you know, kind. She wasn't sort of frustrated, you know. She spoke to people, she looked at them, she talked at them. And I I would have had a heart attack. And then very calmly, she got back in the car and closed the door as if it had been any old kind of moment on a street somewhere. And uh, when did you lose her? She died in 2011. So I was 29 then. But... Yeah, that's the thing with grief, I guess, you know, it doesn't really matter how old you are or when you lose someone you love. You're always returned to a moment of of total helplessness and and vulnerability. You could be 100 years old, but you lose someone you love and you feel like a small child again. The story you just told about, and it was very visual about the car being stuck and crowds of people and this driver getting out of his car to try and shoo people away and then she just takes over and I think that sort of encapsulates what who she was so thank you for sharing that and thank you Fatima for taking this journey and being this week's passenger I really appreciate it oh well thank you Simon it's been really fun reliving all this and in a way imagining it as possible Everything can happen if you imagine it. I know that. Thank you. 
Absolutely.